The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to I Took the High Road with Jacob Jansen. Our program is designed to educate about the drug problems that are reaching epidemic proportions in the United States. Could we be approaching the drug problem the wrong way? Mr. Jansen has been down the road of addiction, down the path of recovery, and now helps others find their path. Addicts are not bad people trying to get good. They're sick people needing to get well. Are you a part of the solution or the problem? Come and join us for an hour of fantastic guests, amazing stories, positive encouragement, and information that just might make your community a better place. Now, here's your host, Jacob Jensen. Hello, everyone. I'm Jacob Jansen, and thank you for joining our show today. I am super excited to be here and talk about such an important topic right now uh, in our country, addiction and recovery. Uh, this will be a call-in show, uh, and you can email. So if you have a question for me, and if we have time, you can either call in at 866-472-5792 or email me at jacobjansen at itookthehighroad.com. Uh, so when people... Uh, I, I told people, first told people about the show, uh, quite a few responded, you know, aren't you worried to do a live show that's broadcast worldwide? Uh, you know, and my response was no. What, what I'm really worried about right now in, in this country is the current drug problem, specifically the prescription pill and heroin epidemic, and that people don't know how to or are really ashamed to get help in this country. Uh, we put such a negative spin on users in our communities, and this creates a stigma that bars people from getting proper help. No one really wants to, says that they want to grow up and be opiate dependent. Uh, so on today's show, uh, I'm going to tell my story of heroin addiction and uh, recovery with my special guests, my parents, Patrick and Karen Jansen, to tell their side of the story uh, as parents going through something like this. So through, throughout my recovery, um, I've been able to tell my story to quite a wide variety of people. Um, and I've been told by quite a few that I've had a very interesting life so far. So you'll really have to decide that. Uh, but first, what I want to do is, is talk about what the show is going to be about and why we really need to change our views on addiction in this country. Uh, so here are a few st current statistics coming about, uh, about this current drug epidemic that's sweeping the nation. Uh, these statistics are uh, from Performers Academy. They did a public service announcement called uh, The Face of uh, Addiction. Um, and these are also from the Center of Disease Control. So uh, every 19 minutes in this country, we lose one life to a prescription drug overdose. In 2011, of the 41,340 drug overdoses in the United States, 22,810, that's 55%, were related to pharmaceuticals. 
between 1995 and 2005, treatment admissions for dependence on prescription painkillers grew more than 300%. One out of five high school students admits to using a prescription drug without a prescription. Now, these are the kids that are admitting to it. On average, every day, 2,500 teens use prescription drugs to get high for the first time. Drug overdoses have now surpassed car crashes and accidental deaths in the United States. In 1974, the American Medical Association classified drug abuse as a disease, so why are we still treating it as a criminal behavior? Uh, there's a really great thing on Outreach.com, they put it out there, that said, could you imagine if we treated all illness like we treat the mental illness of drug addiction? And this is their response. I'm getting very tired of this cancer of yours. Yeah, you think you need your asthma puffer because you can't deal with reality. Sigh. I had to work overtime again because Adam went and had a heart attack or some shit. So... If, if we need to start changing the way we view drug addiction in this society and start taking that stigma out of getting help um, and, and make it more available for people to get help. So uh, now what I want to do is get into my life story and a little bit of what I went through um, as an IV heroin user and my recovery. Uh, so growing up, you know, I had a really good upbringing. Uh, you know, my kids, my parents gave me r really everything that a could, kid could ask for. Um, I was smart. I was a little daredevil. Um, I was in a lot of activities, sports, extracurriculars, but I always found uh, that, I, that I fit in better with adults. I got glasses in third grade. I, you know, I was a little bit smarter and, and always kind of uh, thought uh, that, you know, adults were less judgmental and that's where I, I best fit in. So at, at 13, I was sitting around a campfire uh, with some adults, my parents included, uh, and my dad asked, asked me to hold his beer and said, hey, I'm going to go to the bathroom. Can you hold this? When he came back, it was gone. And that was the really first uh, drink of alcohol that I ever remember having. And remember thinking, you know, wow, this is great. I feel like an adult. I fit in with these older people. Uh, so in high school, I started, you know, drinking a, a little bit more uh, because we had a corner store right behind my parents' house, and I made friends with the corner store's son uh, and was able to get alcohol out of the, the back door of the store and start supplying it to older kids. I was about a freshman at this time and supplying to the junior seniors for their proms and uh, homecomings, and that led me to being around some older kids that had marijuana, and I remember I was about 15 and a half, and it was just outside the school grounds. Uh, we were actually having a couple beers outside and somebody had a pipe and I remember him handing that to me, uh, taking a hit and I don't remember, uh, you know, exactly the high, but I remember the next day following that person all over the school and asking him how I could get this and, you know, what it was and what type it was and just remembering the D.A.R.E. program lied to me. This, this brain on drugs, this idea of a fried egg, frying your brain, it, it didn't happen to me. And, and that kind of really opened up the gateway for a, a lot of different things. Um, 
I was a scholar athlete in high school. I was a three-time letter runner in, in swimming. Uh, I was in cross-country track and in the marching band. I was in a lot of good classes and uh, you know in, in activities. So no one really saw me starting to to move down that bad path. Uh, my senior year, I started doing hallucinogens, and in 1999, I entered college at UWM pre-med. Uh, I wanted to be an anesthesiologist, learn all about drugs, how they interacted with people, and that really um, got me into a lot of different hallucinogens. Um, some of the ones that I can remember off the top of my head, LSD, DMT, DXM, 2CB, mescaline, GHB, ketamine, MDMA, MDMA, uh, and I did a lot of these substances, but it was always a recreational weekend type of thing. I was always doing very well in college. No one really uh, saw me moving down this bad path. Uh, September of 1999, I just uh, entered college, uh, and I met my current fiance, Casey. We've been together 15 years. She's also in recovery uh, for a little over four years, and we have a beautiful baby girl together now who's about a year and a half old. Um, so right after I met Casey, I actually got a job at a major hedge fund in Milwaukee in about 1999. Um, you know, and I thought this was awesome. I was making quite a bit of money at a, at a young age. I started as a temp, uh, really moved my way up through the ranks to become a, a hedge fund manager there uh, over that first year. Um, and I really decided, hey, all these illegal drugs uh, could cause a problem for me. And that's when I decided to really move to um, Oxycontin, illegal drug pharmaceuticals that I thought was going to be a little bit more safe. Uh, found out it wasn't. Um, I, I slowly uh, started destroying my life. My first arrest was uh, 515 of 2002. And at that time, um, I, I got a DUI and I ended up getting caught with an ounce and a half of mushrooms and an ounce of weed in the car. They didn't put those charges on me till about two years later. Um, it, because of those charges uh, and the drug testing, I started moving more away from marijuana and more to legal prescription painkillers. I thought these things were safe, um, and boy, was I wrong. It led me down a pretty dangerous downward spiral. So uh, pretty quickly after that, I, I lost my job. Um, I was put on probation again. And, it, you know, it, it kind of was a joke back at that time. I had uh, prescription painkillers for, you know, lower back problems prescribed by doctors. Uh, and way back in 2005, 2006, there was really no differentiation between um, a chemical and a drug test like Oxycontin and heroin. They're all uh, testing for the same substance. So when that happened and I lost my job, uh, the move out of desperation came when the money cut off. I moved from Oxycontin to heroin because it was a much cheaper substance uh, that was very chemically equivalent. And the three years that I was on paper, I used opiates just about every day uh, th that I was there using heroin. Uh, so, you know, it started to get worse. I started to do doc shopping, what they call doc shopping. A lot of my friends at that time were seeing multiple doctors getting high doses of pain medication. Uh, and it all really ended with my parents' house getting raided on April 23rd, 2010. Uh, it came down, I was facing 57 years of prison for distribution. Uh, somebody sold out of my parents' house, and uh, that was a very, very stressful time in my life. Uh, it was about four and a half years into my IV heroin use, um, and everything was collapsing around me. I've, I watched friends die. Um, I lost uh, qu quite a lot of things. Um, and it was just a really, really tough time in my life. Uh, one of the things that I decided to do, my lawyer either said, hey, 
uh, we can put you put a wire on you, and uh, you can narc on somebody. And I said, I'm I'm not going to benefit off somebody else's uh, misery. So I decided to take option number two, which was go to a treatment facility. So I went out. Started looking for different treatment facilities. Came back, found some beautiful ones in Florida and California. Uh, you know, and and I went to talk to my lawyer. I presented this information, and I'll never forget what he said. And I'm going to clean up the language. He goes, Jake, you've been making enough bad decisions. It's time to let somebody else make a decision for you. And that was probably some of the best advice I ever took. I decided to go to a treatment facility, um, and I ended up getting clean. Uh, I, I went in June 2010 uh, to the first facility. There's actually an individual in the court case there that made it in just before me. I was asked to leave. Um, I went home. I got my doctor scripts again, um, and I used quite heavily with one of my good friends. He passed away about two years ago to uh, a heroin overdose right after he got released from jail. Um, you know, and and that was a, a very difficult time for me. Also, I uh, made it through that period and I got into a different treatment facility in Oshkosh called Nova and Nova saved my life. Um, I got clean and I was ten and a half months clean before I got sentenced. Uh, I went to court. The DA wanted three years in prison. Um, and at this time I was uh, back in school, enrolled at school at UWM. I was working um, at a very wonderful heating and air conditioning company that uh, I wouldn't have made it through my Huber sentence if they didn't help for me. Um, and I, I uh, got through there with a lot of support and help of friends. Um, I was 10 and a half months clean when I was sentenced and I went to court uh, thinking that this was just going to be another status hearing and they decided to give me an option and I had two minutes to make the decision. Uh, they were going to reduce my felony distribution to felony uh, possession, and uh, they were going to recommend three years in prison. And right there, I had to make a decision: was I going to be a felon for the rest of my life, um, or was I going to take this to court and fight it? And I couldn't smoke a cigarette, and it was super stressful. Um, you know, I went back into that courtroom, and after ten and a half months of treatment, I realized that I needed to take ownership for my actions, um, and I decided to plead guilty uh, to possession of heroin. And I am now a felon in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, you know, it was a very double-edged sword that that was the thing that got me into treatment, but it was also the thing uh, that held me back in my progress from moving forward with with uh, quite a few people. So, um, you know, after sentencing, I got sentenced to nine months of Huber, and uh, th that was one of the most difficult periods of my life. It was definitely an exercise in stress management and sleep deprivation. Uh, the, you know, we slept very little. Uh, we were out 12 hours a day, but the 12 hours a day that we are in, they made it very, very difficult. The lights on at night, they woke you up. Um, very, very stressful situation, and that's where I really realized that, you know, the jail is, is not treatment, it is certainly punishment. Um, and one of the things that really helped me go through that was starting my recovery project, LLC. And I realized there was really four steps to getting and staying clean. The first is the intervention process, making somebody realize that their actions are affecting other people negatively. Uh, the second step 
in this process is the detoxification process. Uh, after the intervention, the drugs need to get out of a person's system so they can move on to the third step, which is rehabilitation. Uh, and in rehabilitation, that's where you go to a treatment facility for 30, 60, or 90 days, and they really teach you how to build a good support structure um, and good coping mechanisms to function in the, re the real world. And then the fourth step and component that so many people miss uh, is making a better life for yourself. And I really want to be involved in the front and back end. Uh, so I became a certified intervention specialist and a certified recovery coach to get people to treatment, but to also really help them when they get back. Um, you know, I've done a lot of things uh, in my life to, to, to move this forward. Uh, you know, I've become an administrator for Stop Heroin Wisconsin. I'm on the board of directors for RCI. I've graduated from college with my finance degree. Um, and really moved uh, forward with my life, and that was not easy. So uh, coming back from this next break, we're going to take a quick break here. Uh, and when we come back, I'm going to talk about some of the things that I've really learned in going through this process of uh, addiction and then coming out on the other side with my recovery. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, uh, we'll, we'll talk about what I learned. Thank you, and we'll talk to you soon. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Hi, my name is Jacob Jansen, and I am the owner of My Recovery Project. Do you know someone using drugs or alcohol? Are their actions negatively affecting you or people you care about? If so, it is time for an intervention. Far too often, we are a country that acts after problems arise. It is time to act now. Interventions confront a person and allow them to see their self-destructive behavior and how it affects themselves, family, and friends. Just as important, interventions help the family understand the disease of addiction and make sure the loved one gets the help they need by offering a solution of treatment. I have been through the hell of addiction, and I have found a passion in recovery helping others. Getting a person into treatment can be a difficult task. I help the family through this providing options, and I become a mediator during the intervention. If you would like more information, please visit www.myrecoveryproject.com or call 262-290-1072 for a free consultation before things get worse. Cancer is not something to be taken lightly. But instead of being talked at by doctors, medical providers, and others, wouldn't it be nice to hear from a host who has worked at the Cancer Coalface for 38 years as a caregiver, supporter for 14,000 patients, and who has had the experience of having a life-threatening condition herself? You will hear the stories of survivors and other people who work in breakthrough cancer medicine. Navigating the Cancer Maze with host Grace Goller will help you with the facts, planning, and grief experienced with different forms and stages of cancer. Listen every Friday at 12 noon U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
You are listening to I Took the High Road with host Jacob Jansen. To reach our show today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Or send us an email at jacobjansen at itookthehighroad.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, this is Jake Jansen again, and thanks for tuning in. Uh, we just talked about my life story, a very condensed version, and what I went through. Um, and now I want to talk about some of the things that I learned going through that process and hope I can pass on some of this information and, and help some other people out. Um, so, you know, one of the biggest things that I learned going through this process uh, is you can view each situation either as a victim or a creator of, of the circumstance. And what do I mean by that? Uh, it's, it's really about finding the silver lining and every situation. What can you learn from a situation? Everybody goes through difficult uh, times in their life, but it's really about saying, uh, how are we going to handle this? Are we going to learn from it? Uh, Are we going to take this and be able to help others with it? Or are we really going to play the victim role and say, poor me? Uh, the second thing, really good book, by the way, um, if you want to learn more about that, it's called The Empowerment Dynamic, The Power of TED. Uh, very good book, short read, but it, it really helped change my life and the view on how I see the world. Um, so the, the next thing that I learned is getting into jail is far easier than getting into somebody somebody into treatment for help. Um, you know, I've been on both ends of this. I've been through the judicial system many, many times, through the court system, um, and also as an interventionist, I work to get people into treatment. Uh, Very, very difficult process sometimes. I went on uh, CNBC and found some statistics. Uh, This is right from CNBC. With more than 2.3 million people locked up in the U.S., the U.S. has the highest incarceration rate in the world. One out of 100 American adults is behind bars, while a stunning one out of 32 is on probation, parole, or in prison. This reliance on mass incarceration has created a thriving prison economy. The states and the federal government government spend about 74 billion that's billion with a b a year on corrections and nearly 800,000 people work in that industry that's more than the auto industry right now so what I wanted to do, I wanted to look at what are they putting into treatment and prevention programs. If they're spending $74 billion on locking people up, and estimates range between 80 to 90% of those people incarcerated um, also have a drug or alcohol problem. Uh, so I went to the Office of National Drug Control Policy. Now this is, comes out from the White House. This is the White House page. This is what they're doing. So for treatment, they spend $9.2 billion a year. Now remember, $74 billion to lock people up. The treatment is $9.2 billion. Now this is $4.7 billion in health and human services, which is a $283 million increase from last year. Okay, now health and human services, at least in our county, do state assessments and offer uh, classes, but it's really not intensive inpatient, uh, you know, residential inpatient setting. Uh, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services, SAMHSA, got 360 
$4 million, and that's a $61 million decrease from 2012. Now, SAMHSA is out there doing some great things. Uh, you can look at their website. Uh, for recovery month this month, you can go on there. You can put in your zip code, tell them how many miles you want to travel, and they'll give you the local events um, in that area. So they're doing good things, but they're starting to cut the funding for those programs a little bit. Now, on the prevention side, the federal resources for prevention only total $1.4 billion for education and outreach programs preventing the initiation of drug use. Why are we only spending $1.4 billion on prevention and education and $74 billion locking people up when we know prevention works far better than incarceration? Of that $1.4 billion, that's a 1% decrease over the last last year in 2012 so over 12 to 13 as we see this drug problem getting worse and worse in our country they're cutting funding even if it's only one percent don't you think we should be raising this funding uh, so the next thing I learned uh, in, in my recovery is that giving back is so important uh, you know, one of the things that happened out of my sentence, one of the only things that was beneficial out of my punishment through the judicial system was that I was asked to do uh, community service, some volunteer work in the community. Uh, and I realized in doing that, uh, that helping other people is very gratifying. Giving it away uh, is very gratifying. And, and in AA, there's a saying that you can't get it unless you give it away. Uh, and that really speaks to the feeling that you get when you help other people. Uh, so, you know, there's a story that, that I really love to tell, um, and it's about an addict who falls into a hole. So an addict fell into a hole and couldn't get out. A businessman went by, and the addict called out for help. The businessman threw him some money and told him to buy himself a ladder, but the addict could not buy a ladder in this hole he was in. A doctor walked by. The addict said, help, I can't get out. The doctor gave him some drugs and said, take this, it will relieve the pain. The addict said thanks, but when the pain pills ran out, he was still in the hole. A well-known psychiatrist rode by and heard the addict's cries for help. He stopped and asked, how did you get there? Where were you born? Did your parents put you there? Tell me about yourself. It will alleviate your sense of loneliness. So the addict talked with him for an hour. Then the psychiatrist had to leave, but he said he'd be back next week. The addict thanked him, but he was still in the hole. A priest came by, and the addict, sorry, the priest came by. The addict called for help. The priest gave him a Bible and said, I'll say a prayer for you. He got down on his knees and prayed for the addict, and then he left. The addict was very grateful. He read the Bible, but he was still stuck in the hole. A recovering addict happened to be passing by. The addict cried out, hey, help me. I'm stuck in this hole. Right away, the recovering addict jumped down in the hole with him. The addict said, what are you doing? Now we're both stuck here. But the recovering addict said, calm down. It's okay. I've been here before, and I know how to get out. Uh, you know, that was really one of the things that started me on uh, the, the My Recovery Project. It started as a customized clothing company to help other programs uh, raise money for the programs that they were doing. And, and I realized I wanted to do something more um, and help other people. That was really one of the things that helped me through that very difficult process of incarceration was, was helping some other people make it through that very difficult process. Um, so, you know, one of the other things that I learned... Uh, is that you have to make a better life for yourself in recovery. Uh, when you quit using, 
life does not get easier, it gets more difficult. Uh, you still have all of the stresses, all of the problems, all of the things that were created by this drug addiction. You're still stuck in that hole, uh, but now you have to come back, and you don't have that coping mechanism that you was was used so effectively to to delay that stress or that problems to another point in your life. So when people come back, they really have to start dealing with those problems. And as a recovery coach, uh, that's what I really help people do: is figure out what's causing them stress and problems problems in their life and how do they fix it with the tools that they have. Uh, once they've fixed some of those problems, they start to see that better life. They found those support structures again and, and positive people to be around. Then it's really about moving towards purpose and saying, uh, what's your purpose in life and how are we going to help you get there with stage appropriate goals? Um, you know, so the uh, one of the last things that I learned here is that everyone asks for help. Uh, you know, being a human is difficult in this world. You know, it's really difficult. Being a human with a mental health issue uh, like addiction, it's even more difficult. And we can't think that we can do this alone. Um, you know, so if, if you have a problem out there, if you're currently using prescription pills or opiates um, and you're seeing it negatively affect your or somebody else's life that you know, uh, please, please ask for help. You know, there's no shame in asking for help right now. Um, I had to do it uh, and I help people do it all the time and make that decision to find a much happier, healthier, better life for themselves. Uh, so right now, um, I have my special guests, Pat and Karen Jansen, uh, in, in uh, the studio today. Um, and I want to talk to them uh, about their perspective of what they went through with my drug addiction and, and really how it affected them. Okay, so uh, first question, uh, please tell me a bit about what you went through as parents of an opiate addict, as, as being my parents. Well, it's, first thing you have to realize is that it's a very high-functioning uh, drug. So as you go through this, there's a strong sense of denial. And you're saying, this can't happen to my kids. This has got to be a situation that is going to go away by itself. So, it, But it comes up that all of a sudden you start having experiences like jail. Uh, multiple times he was in jail. And then there's Huber. Uh, he spent time in Huber. So we had experience with attorneys, courtrooms, judges, police, SWAT team, uh, numerous house searches, child handcuffed and taken out of the house. It's just a very difficult time to go through. And quite honestly, I, I can't remember any positive memories coming out of this. So, Okay, uh, so when did you first recognize that my actions might be a little bit more serious than I was leading on to? That's a great question. Uh, the um, Since addiction is such a, uh, it was very subtle, insidious, uh, and by the time that we recognized that there was a problem, it was very palpable and pervasive. The uh, uh, There were tidbits of our knowledge knowing he was using in experimenting in high school and uh, many indications before we came to grips with what was happening. It was a high, a high functioning on the drug. And it was hard to tell what was happening without knowing what to look for. Um, and also we were in denial uh, about what was happening. 
looking back, uh, what would you have done differently with this situation, if anything? You know, I know there's quite a few things that I might have done differently or asked for help a little bit earlier. What would you have done differently? Yeah, th that's an interesting question. I think as you go through things uh, over time, we, we would have thought of different things. But looking back at it right now and seeing the success that uh, Jake is having, it, it's difficult to second-guess yourself and say, what would you have done different? Uh, from what we've seen talking to different addicts, every addict is different, and every addict has different needs to try to help find their way through recovery. So we seem to have found the right formula, Jake, and we're just thankful for that. Um, looking for uh, back, we would also have gone for counseling at a earlier stage, um, because, and we I recognize now that detox in the home doesn't work. Uh, so we would have looked for detox facilities uh, that were you know, of a professional nature. Um, and also, I would have gotten uh, help much more quickly with uh, counseling, psychological counseling, uh, and taken the advice of the counselors, which I did uh, sooner, uh, to prevent some of the emotional stressors that I went through uh, um, suffering alone for quite a long time. My research was quite extensive. I had manila folders of uh, about two inches worth of in information on rehab facilities. I guess I would have sought counseling sooner uh, so that uh, I didn't have to do an internet search on my own. There's uh, one thing that I think is very important that as we went through trying to find help um, to see how we would deal with this, uh, it was very difficult finding the right help. And one thing looking back at it right now, I would certainly look for somebody that has had the experience as Jake's little story told, somebody that's been through it. I mean, you don't go out and look for anybody on the street to work on your car. You look for somebody that's qualified that understands a car. Uh, I think the same thing applies in this field is that somebody that understands addiction probably can help you uh, walk through it a lot more effectively than somebody that hasn't been there. So what do you think was the, the most stressful part of the situation? And I know, Mom, you talked uh, about some of that stress that you went through. Uh, the education in the legal system, that by far was the most stressful part for me, uh, learning uh, how to um, sit in a courtroom, learning how to turn off your cell phone, learning how to um, meet with attorneys, um, the process of the paperwork coming in the mail, those um, having the house searched, that by far and lar large was the largest uh, stressor in my life because I was home. It was a day that I had uh, off of work, and that was by and far the largest stressor when the SWAT team, team came to our house to take you to jail. I certainly remember that also, and that was uh, quite a big stressor for me. I remember it happening uh, very early in the morning and the police knocking on the door and quickly barging in with their taser shields and assault rifles aiming at my head as a, a nonviolent drug offender in this community, um, treated like a violent, violent uh, a criminal. And, and that was quite traumatic for me also. Um, I still have quite a bit of post-traumatic stress left over from this event. Uh, you know, I was an opiate dependent on, you know, prescription pills and heroin for nine years. And I can easily say that that nine months of Huber incarceration uh, was far more stressful and caused way more post-traumatic stress than my whole nine years of using. Um, 
I still have nightmares uh, about going through that that hell uh, and that punishment. And really, when I look back, you know, I was ten and a half months clean out in society, volunteering, going to school, working. Um, you know, the punishment was really on me and my family and the things that I put them through. Um, so adding that extra layer of punishment for me after I've already made that decision to get clean, um, you know, was pretty difficult. So, uh, One of the post-traumatic stress things that I dealt with and uh, announced to the psychologist, she identified it for me. I said, I, I don't want to answer the phone. Uh, and so she said, oh, a little post-traumatic stress. I went, oh, I guess so. Uh, so as a consequence, uh, uh, we, have we learned how to screen the, the phones. That was related to uh, getting calls from Jake in jail. Uh, the other thing that we did is install a, my husband installed a new doorbell because I could not uh, uh, listen to the doorbell ring without having uh, an emotional response in the pit of my stomach that I is uh, related to the doorbell ringing when the SWAT team came. Sure, and, and, I, and I have to make a comment here, not to say that I'm bashing the judicial system by any means. Uh, they do certainly serve a purpose. For me, it was that crisis point, that double-edged sword that, you know, the, with those charges hanging over my head that made me realize I really need to change and get help and get into some treatment. Uh, but the problem was it was when, when I got clean and out of treatment, uh, it became a hindrance for me to really move forward with my life, do the things that I wanted to, um, you know, get jobs again in society as a felon um, and it made it really difficult but one of the good things you know we're in the Midwest we're very conservative uh, is that I'm starting to see the court systems move towards uh, that era of treatment instead of punishment they're starting to offer treatment services through the drug courts uh, they're starting to give people chances and recognize that the treatment is a better option uh, but here's the thing like I said before it is so hard to get somebody into treatment right now we don't have enough beds insurance companies don't want to pay for the right levels of treatment. Um, and right now the state says it's far easier to lock these people up than get them help. So uh, we need to change that. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue talking with my parents. Uh, thank you. Talk to you soon. Answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You read about it in health news every day. Cancer rates are going up. Obesity in the U.S. is on the rise. Heart disease and diabetes are top killers every year. We can follow the advice of our doctor, but cravings persist. Weight goes up and energy is still down. It doesn't have to be like this. Tune in for Body Balance Talk with your host, Jeannie Schmidt, along with Lucy and Madeline. You'll learn how you can work with your body to feel better and look better, too. Body Balance Talk airs live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Hi. My name is Jacob Jansen, and I am the owner of My Recovery Project. Do you know someone using drugs or alcohol? Are their actions negatively affecting you or people you care about? If so, it is time for an intervention. 
Far too often, we are a country that acts after problems arise. It is time to act now. Interventions confront a person and allow them to see their self-destructive behavior and how it affects themselves, family, and friends. Just as important, interventions help the family understand the disease of addiction and make sure the loved one gets the help they need by offering a solution of treatment. I have been through the hell of addiction, and I have found a passion in recovery helping others. Getting a person into treatment can be a difficult task. I help the family through this, providing options, and I become a mediator during the intervention. If you would like more information, please visit www.myrecoveryproject.com or call 262-290-1072 for a free consultation before things get worse. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to I Took the High Road with host Jacob Jansen. To reach our show today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Or send us an email at jacobjansen at itookthehighroad.com. Now, back to the show. Hello, welcome again, and I'm Jacob Jansen. We're here with my special guests, Patrick and Karen Jansen, my parents, uh, to talk about their perspective and what they went through uh, as I went through my opiate addiction as parents. So, uh, Pat and Karen, could could you please tell me a, a little bit more about what you went through? Uh, what was one of the most stressful situations that you went through when, when I was going through this opiate addiction? Well... Uh, before we get to that question, I just want to say that the catalyst for tra- change in our the dynamics of our household depended, and it was on the uh, judicial system and the police. So I am grateful in that respect that they were a part of the process to get help for you. But do you think it could have been done differently? I it, I would have suffered less stress, but I don't know what that would look like. Sure. Sure. There's a tremendous amount of delays in, in the judicial system that really kept you from moving ahead in the rehab program. Uh, you were doing so many positive things and then something would step in that would kind of kick you back several months to deal with issues that you were already past. So that, that was a difficult part in watching that system unfold very slow. Sure. Uh, when when you look back at that, you know, five years ago when we kind of started this process or so, uh, where did you think I was going to be today five years out? Well, we all. Go ahead. I was going to say one one thing that I wanted to talk about just very briefly, and then we'll we'll hit into that. But the the stressful part that you were talking about, I, I think it's a very very difficult scenario as a parent to walk through something like this because you feel like you're walking a fine line between enabling and then possibly being the catalyst that kicks the the addict over the deep end because you know day to day you're dealing with something that could be a killer, and it is many times you hear that going on so. There's decisions that come up. You say, I really don't want to do that. But if I don't, and that's a constant thought in your mind over the years that this whole process unfolded. And that in itself was stress that was prolonged for years. Sure. I I, I certainly remember going through that and having this mentality that, you know, 
I'm going to prison anyway. Screw it. I might as well keep using. And then all of a sudden, after treatment, something clicked. Or you're talking to somebody that said, wait a minute, if, if I get into treatment and get some help, maybe I got a chance of staying out of prison here. So it was, for, for me, it was really about you know changing that view that I talked about, the empower dynamic, from you know, changing that vic- from the, the victim perspective to the creator of the circumstance and saying, okay, I'm going to take control of my life right now. Heroin was controlling my life for many many years it's time to say enough of is enough and you know fix my life get out of the judicial system and start finding happiness so you know again I want to go back to that question five years ago when when did where did you think I was going to be today well there's a couple outcomes uh, that could be uh, happening and uh, that would be jail death or institution and um, death was a possibility I recall uh, checking on uh, both Jake and Casey to uh, check to see how their breathing was when I knew that they were on opiates as a nurse. Um, and um, but, but we always had hope. Sure. I, I remember, uh, you know, addiction is such a selfish disease. It really clouds you from seeing how other people are seeing this. And I, I remember my parents, you know, uh, during the depths of my IV heroin addiction, asking me to move home. Um, and, and my thought was, great, you know, here's seven, $800 a month extra that I don't have to spend on rent that I could spend on a drug and, and live at their house. And, you know, many years later into my recovery, um, I found out that, you know, it wasn't about helping me save money but it was more about that they didn't want me to die on the street and and if I was going to be using to use at home around a nurse or somebody that might be able to take care of me. Um, That brings up another really good point. If you know an opiate addict that is uh, in your family, uh, that, that you know somebody that you're around them, please go out and get the naloxone shot. Um, in Wisconsin, uh, you can do that at LifePoint. It's a free shot, and this can help um, counteract a drug overdose uh, from heroin or Oxycontin or another prescription opiate. Um, it's completely safe. It's 15 minutes for training, um, and, and it could potentially save somebody's life. So it's, it's really important that if you know somebody who's out there using, go out and do this. It's not enabling uh, them to continue using or higher amounts. Uh, no one tries to overdose. This is about being able to save somebody's life um, so they have that opportunity to recover and change. If they're dead, they just can't do it. You know, and that's when my mom talks about jails, institutions, and death. You know, those really are the three three uh, paths that you can go down. You know, I've been through the jails and it didn't work or help me get clean. Uh, the institutions, when we talk about that, we talk about the rehab facilities, the treatment facilities. Um, it took me numerous times uh, before, you know, it stuck, but I'm, I'm glad I kept at it and, and, and it did. Um, you know, and then the third one is death and, and um, I've lost way too many friends to this. I've seen one die in my arms. Um, I've been incarcerated while friends died um, and, and haven't been able to go to funerals. Uh, you know, it was it was a very tough path. So, you know, five years ago, if you asked me where I thought I was going to be to dead, honestly, I could probably say dead, you know, or where I was going to be today, I'd say dead. Uh, five years ago, um, I was so desperate, didn't know how to get out of the cycle, wanted help, but was too ashamed to, to ask for it. Um, so it, the next question that I have for you is what has going through this process taught you as parents? To reach out for someone uh, for support, 
uh, you can't do it alone. Um, and like I mentioned before, a little earlier in the process, when you recognize that your center uh, center line of normalcy is starting to move to uh, out of the normal range, and then you keep pushing that center line over and over and over until people looking at you say they know something's wrong, but they have no idea what it is. So I would look to family and friends for support and confide in them. Sure. And and when we talk about opiate addiction, you know, that, that or, or heroin addiction, that typical image of the addict living under the bridge comes up. Well, you know, that's just not true. That That's a misconception. Nine out of ten opiate addicts right now are high-functioning addicts with jobs uh, that do very well. You know, I was a hedge fund manager uh, walking into the bathroom to sniff lines before million-dollar trades. Um, so th- this is an addiction that starts with innocently enough with prescription pills. Uh, people think they're safe. There's uh, no stigma attached with getting a prescription for a doctor. And, and, and you know, with the right mindset, it can lead uh, you to a very difficult uh, path, you know, and part of your life. So the, the three things that I've really identified um, as, as what causes somebody to get hooked on a certain substance, there's three things. Uh, the first is the brain chemistry or physiology, uh, you know, that, that really says, does this chemical interact with your head and make you really like it? The first, the second is lack of information or misinformation. Uh, do you have the right information uh, on a certain substance? And then the third is risk-taking behavior or ability. Are you going to take a risk uh, based on information that may or may not be correct or you may not have that is going to uh, link up with your brain chemistry and get you physically hooked on this substance? So, you know, those were the three things that I really uh, identified. And certainly my brain chemistry uh, has that addictive behavior with many, many different substances. So I have to be very careful and vigilant about that. Um, So what have you done as part of your healing process? Or is there anything that you'd really like to recommend to listeners who are going through this addiction in the family? Well, well, certainly there's, there's help available. I think as you go through this, uh, we realized five years ago that we were past the point of denial and we really said, okay, there, there's a problem. What do we do? And, and the close relationship, we kind of sat down. It sounds kind of kind of an odd statement, but we said, you know, we're the reason that Jake is here. Let's figure out how to deal with this. And a lot of the thoughts were you really had to think back to prior. Parents can remember what the person was like prior to the addiction. And that holds you through a lot of this saying that, we can get through there. He's got a lot of abilities. We know what he's like deep down inside. Let's get back there. He has a kind and compassionate heart. Um, strong. He was strongly influenced by peers. Um, there's a quality of persistence and generosity. All of those things um, we recognize gave us hope. I, I think you got to realize it just takes an insane amount of patience to constantly keep the communication channel open because you don't want to drive that person away. You want to keep them close at hand. You want to help them reestablish the life that you know that they're capable of. It takes a tremendous amount of effort. 
Sure. You know, when I talk with a lot of people and no heroin addicts ever said they wanted to be heroin addicts and most of them don't like what they're doing and want to get out of the situation. And, and I've heard a comment that, you know, I think is very relevant here. It's that, you know, when somebody gets hooked on opiates, there's two different people there. Uh, there's the addicted person and there's the person you used to know. And it's really about fighting that addicted person uh, you know, and loving the person that you used to know and being supportive but not enabling and, and helping them get the, the help that they need, realizing that, you know, these are not bad people trying to get good. These are sick people needing to get well. They need help. They need treatment. They need counseling. They need peers going through, uh, you know, these this same type of thing. I, I think that for me, it's really been a paradigm shift going through all of this. Uh, I think everybody's heard the statement, if that's the worst thing that happens, you're truly blessed. Uh, seeing your child go through something like this, we feel truly blessed right now that we've come out the back end and all other problems are are very easy to handle compared to something like this. <laughs> I, can, I can certainly relate. Going through, you know, the judicial systems and funerals and heroin addictions, um, you know, it gives you a really interesting perspective on life. You know, they, they talk about when you lose things, you really start to appreciate them that much more. You know, that's one thing that I learned when, when I was locked up in jail, you know, in, in Huber, uh, you start to realize really what's important in life um, and some of those small things that we start to take for granted, you know, ice, ice in your water, uh, fresh clothes, human interaction and touch. Um, and you start realizing that, you know, material things are less and less important. That was a, a big view that I had while working at the hedge fund, very materialistic. Uh, and I lost that, I think, you know, going through this because I saw the people who were standing around me and supporting me. I saw my friends and family and realized that those were the things uh, that life is really worth living for and keep you going. And how it affected me, I slept better when Jake was either in a re uh, rehab facility or in jail. I, I really slept better knowing that he was safe. And I think as a parent, and part of the education we got going through this is very impactful, very meaningful, is that as parents, you cannot force the change. The addict has to want the change and be take responsibility and ownership for it. So sure. all you can do as parents is kind of keep planting seeds, hoping one of them's going to sprout and, and move you in the direction to saying, I, I really want to get help, so it really is meaningful and well, effective. And, and that's really what I do it during the intervention process is help the family do it the right way, plant those seeds. Um, and it's a very effective process in uh, helping that person understand that their actions are negatively affecting the family and they're not going to stand for it. But it's not just talking about the problem. It's about providing a solution of, of treatment and therapy for them. And that's something that you know I really enjoy doing, working with the families, making sure that they present all the information the right way, uh, but also so that individual, you know, uh, find the right facility so that individual has a high success rate and a high completion rate, you know, at that facility. So uh, is there any other message that you would like to tell parents who, you know, who might be going through this current situation? Uh, surround your child with support, family, friends, open up, open lines of communication, and for me, it's it's there's help available. You can't do this alone. Uh, more so now than it was five years ago. The field is getting to the point recognizing how important it is to get people here if we're going to stem this uh, epidemic. So don't try to do it alone. Find the right help. Find somebody that's qualified that can really help you, and it'll go through a lot smoother, and it'll be a lot easier on you and your and your child. 
Yeah, you know, if if we can uh, create that proverbial bottom for that individual, make that you know that that bottom come up quicker before a drug overdose, before an arrest. You know, that's really the idea to help them to to see that issue and to see that problem before it gets worse. And that's what interventions are really effective at doing. Um, so. That's just about all the time we have for today. Um, you know, I'd, I'd really like to thank my guests, uh, mom and dad, Patrick and Karen Jansen, uh, for being here and being a huge part of my support group. Uh, I'd also really like to thank all the people who helped me get clean and to this point in my recovery. Uh, there are many of them. I've realized I can't do it alone and support comes from all different areas. Uh, so, and, and all of you know who you are. So, you know, remember earlier in the show, I talked about things that I learned um, and said that everyone needs help. So this is what I'm asking you to do. If you enjoyed this show today, I want to keep this going. I want to keep good information, get some good guests. So go out and tell three more people about the show, you know, and let's make our communities a better place. So thanks, and please join us next week to talk about our awareness and prevention uh, with guest Linda Lenz, founder of Stop Heroin Wisconsin. Patty Lomas, the founder of the C.J. Lomas Foundation, and Douglas Darby and Anthony Alvarado, co-founders of Rise Together. Uh, have a great week and enjoy life. Thanks. Thank you for listening to I Took the High Road. Please join Jacob Jansen for another encouraging hour next Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll see you next week.